Verse 5 says, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Now in this chapter, the new heaven and the new earth that will come about at the end is set before us here in vision form. The key word is new. It is no longer the old. When I say it is no longer the old, we are not to understand it as totally of another kind altogether. If I said an old apple and an old orange, and now we have a new pear and a new banana, we have something altogether different that is new. But this is not that. That would be new of another kind. But this is new of a similar kind. There is a likeness of the old, but renewed. It is still heaven. It is still earth. But it is a new heaven and a new earth. Or to take the images of the fruit, an old apple, an old orange, now a new apple, a new orange. So it is renewed, refreshed. The explanation of the new, why has the new come about? Who has done this refreshing? And what is the cause thereof? That's the first point tonight. It's no longer the old. It is so for two reasons. First of all, the old is passed away. It says that there in verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth, and the first earth and the first heaven were passed away. It's gone. The old is gone. The old is no longer present. And there is another reason why it is gone. The new now is in its place because the old is gone, but the real reason, the main reason, is because God has done it. God has caused the old to pass away, and he has made the new. You see, in this vision, there's a commentary. These visions are never silent. There's always voices. There are always noises. There is always commentary of some kind accompanying the vision, in the vision, sometimes even explaining the vision. And there is a commentary accompanying this vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And you have it there in verse 5, the beginning of it. It says there, Behold, I make all things new. Uh, whose voice is this? It's the he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So we're back to the one on the throne again. This change that has come about is because of this throne again. This throne that we always meet everywhere in the book. We saw it at the start. We saw it at the end of the world, the great white throne judgment. And now as we go into the new, the throne is still here. The throne ends the old and it brings in the new. And as I said, it's never an empty throne. He that sat upon the throne said, 
Behold, I make all things new. So you always have to be noting this throne, the one who's sitting upon it, and the things that he is saying. And as we enter into the new, he is explaining why this is coming about. Behold, this is from me. Behold, I have done this. Behold, I make all things new. So that's the explanation of what is taking place. And the cause of the new heaven and the new earth. It's me. I make the new heaven and the new earth. So it's done by God, by his power, by his wisdom. The old doesn't pass away by accident. The old doesn't pass away by wear and tear. The old doesn't pass away by man's self-destruction as some people predict. It doesn't pass away by the final end of climate change or whatever or anything like that. It is done by divine intervention and by this throne that is always present in the midst of the cosmos. The throne of God. As God in the beginning made heaven and earth, so at the end God renews heaven and earth. Don't we read that in the beginning? God created the heaven and the earth, and now we see a new heaven and a new earth. Behold, I make all things new. And this one on the throne is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our reigning Redeemer. He's the one who makes things new. He makes new creatures in himself. Remember how that verse in Corinthians it has a bearing on this to some extent. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. This is the language of this vision. Although this vision is after Paul, of course, but the same Holy Spirit is in both authors, both penmen, and there are similar words here. The word new, passing away, all things, I make all things new. So we can nearly say the Lord is taking the words of Paul there and saying, that's me. I make all things new in Christ. So Christ is the one who is the bringer in of the new creation. He is the one who promised all this in the Old Testament. And now everything that was promised in the Old, he now brings it in in the new. He makes all things new. Remember how the Bible says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This is a, the total transformation of the old, a wilderness, a desert, but now a new, a new earth where there are rivers and abundance and life. It's the Lord that does that. You see that also in the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in our studies in Hebrews, we spent quite a time looking at the function of the miracles. What was the purpose of all these miracles of Christ? And we saw they had, had many purposes, but one of the functions was to show the new creation, to give a foretaste of that, to give a sample of what Jesus Christ is going to ultimately do with the old. Take away the leprosy. Take away the deadness. 
Take away the disease. Take away the blindness. Turn the water into the wine. Uh, Tame the wild beasts. Uh, Bring harmony and peace and unity and concord and joy. Take away the demons. Cast them all out into the deep. And all those miracles of Christ, they're all picturing the new. The new what is to come. The one who makes all things new. Jesus is saying, that's me. I do that. And here he is, doing the ultimate miracle of all, making all old things new. Universally, throughout the whole cosmos. So the Lord explains to John what he has seen. This is the new, and behold, this is me, this is what I'm doing. And you notice that this extends to all things. Behold, I make all things new. That has to be noted. Everything. Not a corner left out. Not a part of the world unchanged. Not a thing missed. The purging is universal. Everything is made new by me. And the Lord doesn't stop there at the commentary. Because we read in verse 5, the remaining part of it. And he said unto me, and I take this to be the same one who sat on the throne. Not not just an angel, not someone beside him. But the voice on the throne and he, the one on the throne, he said unto me, write. This word comes in right because John never writes at his own volition. He's only writing because the Lord has told him to write. Write this vision down, write these words, write what you've seen. And again, we are reminded of the origin and authority of the book. The one on the throne said, right. And why we cannot understand the book of the Revelation, and we're very prone to err in the interpretation of it, yet we can never doubt its authority, and we can never question its divine inspiration. It's written at the command of God. The visions that God showed are written down and the Lord is assuring his servant right for these words are true and faithful this is a true and faithful vision it may look far away now it may look like a thing that sounds utterly incredible something unworldlike that there doesn't seem to be any possibility of ever seeing but the Lord says it's true and faithful it's true it's going to be fulfilled even though it's distant, and even though it doesn't like it's any, look like it's anywhere near fulfillment when you're in the midst of this Roman Empire of great evil, John. But right, it's true and faithful nonetheless. And of course we have to believe. We must believe because it is the word of God. And we must keep hearing and we must keep reading and we must keep going over these things and continue to believe them in our hearts and then in verse 6 he said unto me it is done it is done the same voice is saying now again this is a commentary on all that John has seen in this last day this new heaven new earth vision it's done and that doesn't mean that the book is done he's not saying that the end of the book is now here no there's a bit more to the book to be written yet but what he is saying here it, this refers to the new heaven and the new earth. It's done. I, I promise the, the wilderness will be made a well-watered garden. 
the new will come in one day, it's done. It's all been fulfilled. Everything I ever promised in the gospel, in the ages of the world past, are now done. It's complete. It has come to pass. All the promises are fulfilled. It is now the consummation. And nothing is missed. Nothing is left undone. Nothing is left unfulfilled of all the promises of God. Nothing is left untouched. Everything has been dealt with. And it's done. It's finished. So this is the cause. God bringing it to the fruition and the fulfillment and the consummation. And finally saying I make all things new and it's done. Done by me. Done by me alone. And completed. So, so that's the cause of this new. God. And he gets all the glory. But then we see secondly the contrast of the new with the old. Because John in the vision is telling us what is different with it and the old. He, he makes a contrast throughout in different ways. He tells us First of all, he contrasts what is gone, what is done away, what is different. How is the apple new now? If we have an old apple and an old orange and we have a new apple and a new orange and we contrast them, what's the difference between the old apple and the new apple? What's the difference between the old heaven and earth and the new heaven and earth? And that's the way the vision does this because... We could not possibly comprehend all the glory of the new heaven and the new earth in itself. So in the vision, we can only have this by means of contrast with what we already know and see. And so the paint materials of our present cosmos have to be used to try to set forth something of the glory of the new. So what is the difference? Well, one of the ways, as I say, that he does this is to tell us what is not anymore in the new. What it is that has actually passed away. What it is that has actually gone at what is removed. And last week we saw one major difference that is referred to in verse 1. There was no more sea. And it is the first one that John notes. He gets to it straight away. It stands out. And I endeavoured last week to explain what that meant. And that means far more than that there are no more oceans, as we saw last week. And I don't have to repeat that again. He begins there with that contrast, but he doesn't stop there. He goes further. He makes other contrasts. He goes how to describe how other things are gone too. And they have passed away as well by the same refining fires that have removed the sea and made the the earth new. So these refining fires have made other things to go too. And they are described for us here, particularly in the verse 4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, For the former things are passed away. So you see what John is doing here? He's listing things and he's using this expression again. Things that are passed away. The old earth, the old heaven are passed away. 
And then he gets down to some of the specifics about the old, the former things he calls them. That's them gone. They're passed away. And then he gives a list of some of those things. And all of those things describe the misery of the old. Because that's what we are. We're in misery in this present world. Because that's a result of the sin. Sin brings misery and calamity and all these scourges. And that's a real mark of the old apple. There it is, all the misery that covers the whole earth, the whole globe, there it is. But it's passed away. The misery of the old has gone. And this morning has been turned into rejoicing. As I thought about this, it reminded me of Psalm 30 and verse 11. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. That's like the old. The old is the mourning. The old is the sackcloth. The old is the misery. But this God on the throne who makes the things new, he gives us the dance floor. He gives us the raiment of glory and joy and rejoicing and gladness. That's the new. Because the old is gone, you see. There's no more of that sackcloth. No more of that mourning. It's been transformed. And there is again an emphasis on God having done this. Because what does it say there in verse 4? God. It begins with God. God shall wipe away all tears. So it's only because the Lord on the throne is doing this. He removes the tears. And that's not only has the oceans gone and the waters and the seas, but the waters from the human heart, the tears of brokenness, the tears of misery, those waters have gone too. They have ceased as well. And there's no tears to appear in the new. The new apple has no tear stains upon it. Tears belong to the former. And they pass with it. So the Lord starts off with tears. But there are many things that cause tears. And it's not just that the tears have gone. The things that caused all those tears are gone as well. So that there will be no more tears in the new. So he deals then with the cause of tears. It's not going to be a case of, well, God's wiped away all, te- all tears. That's nice. That's a good start. But, you know, he's going to have to take out his handkerchief later on, down through the ages of the new. Somewhere along the line, he's going to have to take out his handkerchief again. No, he's not. There's no more tears. Because the misery of tears, he takes away as well. That's part of the former things that are gone. The first one mentioned, of course, and we're not surprised at that. No more death. Death causes tears. Oh, how we know that. Death causes bitter weeping, great sadness, terrible sorrow. It's a major thing that makes sure everybody cries in life because we all have someone dear to us who dies. But there's no more death than dying. And therefore death will not produce any more tears. Because it's gone. Death is gone. Purging fires have dealt with that too. The last enemy was destroyed at the resurrection. Gone. And no place found for it. And it will never re-enter again. No more place for it. No place for the tears. No place for death. 
There wasn't found a place for all these former things that went away. They'll never get a foothold again. Death was emptied of us, all its occupants, at the resurrection. And it'll find no more. It'll find no more occupants. Its work is done. Its dread has ended. So that means that all that death does is gone. Harming of life. The ceasing of life. The hurting of life. The separation that death brings. Oh, I can't do that anymore. No more separation. No more hurting. Death brings all the decay and all the stench in the world that we have to face. No more decay. No more stench. No more depopulation of the new. There'll be no depopulation ever again. Because death has gone. The major cause of depopulation has been removed. No death. But death is not the only misery. Though it is the first and the major one. There is also other sorrows. And what about them? Neither sorrow. Whatever that sorrow may be. And there are many causes of sorrow. He doesn't say neither sorrows. But he says neither sorrow. Not even one. Not one sorrow. There'll be no sorrow found. There's no place for one sorrow in the new. All the multitude of sorrows on the old have been dealt with and removed. All the sources of misery are gone. So the sorrow has gone. That's a very important word, sorrow, whenever the fall came. Remember after chapters 1 and 2, what did the Lord have to say to the woman? He says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow. That's going to happen. The soul is blighted now and Sorrow is going to be multiplied. Every birth, there's going to be a multiplication of sorrow. You're even going to have sorrow whenever you birth a child. And that sorrow is going to be multiplied in that child. It's going to go on and on and on. And be multiplied endlessly. But God at the end just banishes all of that multiplied sorrow. You remember how he said to Adam, Cursed is the ground in sorrow. Every shovel you take will be a shovel in sorrow. Every fruit you reap from the ground will be a reaping in sorrow. In sorrow you'll eat it. All the days of your life, every day, sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. The days of our years are three score years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be four score years, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. Sorrow. It's a big thing in our life and society. Our days are full of sorrow, the Bible says. Sorrow of disappointment, sorrow of betrayal, sorrow of falling and sinning and war and sickness and on and on we could go. The sorrow of drugs, the sorrow of debt, the sorrow of crime, the sorrow of broken marriages, the sorrow of broken homes. Oh, where would we begin to stop? We could never stop in the old but not one in the new, neither a sorrow. Not a sorrow, the Lord says. Not one. And because no sorrow, no crying, nor crying. Now, this has to be distinguished from tears. You can have tears without crying, but this is crying of the heart, crying of the soul, particularly the people of God crying unto God out of their misery and sorrow, you read the Psalms with this in mind. 
And you will see that the Psalms are Psalms for a world that are full of sorrow. And what are Psalms? Psalms are just crying unto God. Psalms are just laments. They're not all laments, of course, but the major part of the Psalter are those lamentations, those cryings. The psalm is full of cryings because our present course in this world is one of crying. How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Sorrow hath filled my heart. Daily and I cry unto thee. How many times have the psalmist had to say something like that? I found trouble and sorrow. He's crying unto God. He's telling the Lord about it. He said, the sorrows of death compassed me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. I'm weary of my crying, he even had to say at times. My throat is dried. Uh, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. This crying business is hard. It's difficult. But no more psalms of lamentation in the new the cause of all crying is gone and therefore the crying itself is gone the speech now of the saint is different the songs of the people of God are new, they're a new song because they're bereft of all these lamentation aspects all these sorrowful aspects uh, the new song just sets forth the, the nature of the new heaven and the new earth that now is being enjoyed with no repentance, no tears, no sorrow, no misery, no regret, no having to confess sin. That's all gone. And then there's this business of pain. Not a pain anymore, the Bible says here in verse 4. That's part of the former things as well. The earth is filled with pain. No pain in the new. We have all kinds of pain. You know, some of us have bodily pain. Others of us have emotional pain. And others of us have mental pains. We all have pains. Bodily pain you can help with the tablet sometimes. But there's very little you can do for emotional and mental pains. There is none of that. There's no punishment pain. There's no chastisement pain. There is no disease or sickness pain. There's no accidental pain from an injury or whatever. There is no self-pain through wrong thinking and such like. And there's no pain from man and there's no pain from beast. And there's no pain from devil or demon. And there's not even any pain from God or for an angel. All these are sources sometimes of pains in this life. But for those who God wipes away their tears, and that's a very select, identified people, no pain. Not a pain. The tears are wiped away suggests something else. I think more than just the removal of present misery. You see, there is pain from memory. Memory causes pain. And God wipes away the tears and maybe we wipe them away but then we think again, we think of the past, we think of that and the tears come back again. This wiping away the tears and putting it at the very start yes, there are the miseries that cause that they've all been dealt with but what about the memories and the tears that come from them? The regrets. 
the hurts in life that still we bear as scars, or the regrets, the sins that we committed, and we still bear them in our memories. How could we ever live with ourselves? How could we, even in the new, not weep? This weeping then for the past is very much a part of us. We wipe our tears, but they come back again. But somehow, God will even deal with that. I don't know how. But this is included in that. They've just come out of the old weeping. They've just finished the old full of tears. And there are many reasons behind those tears. But God will wipe them all away. And somehow he'll deal with all of it. This is a great marvellous thing, isn't it? Somehow all is gone. If not forgotten... More than recompensed by the new and the love of God and the the mercy of God filling the soul so that the unspeakable joy never causes even the memories any alarm and no more tears. And why has all of this misery gone? It is because God has removed the curse. That's why. The curse is gone. And the curse is gone because sin is gone. Sin has been removed. The fall is reversed in the new. Paradise is restored in the new. We're brought back to Genesis 1 and 2. And even better than that in some respects. And without the probation with which the new humanity had to go through in chapters 1 and 2. But we'll be brought into the paradise regained, the new, without even any more probation, any testing of us whatsoever. It's an eternal state that can never fall again or be reversed. No more sin. All gone. All gone. And it was this plan of God and redemption that could only bring this about. And now it's done. It's done. But there is no more sin because there is something else that is gone. And this is referred to in verse 8. The sinners are gone. There are no more sinners. There are no more ungodly. There are no more unconverted. The wicked have passed away too. No sin because no sinners. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. So you see, mankind unrenewed is gone none to cause sorrow anymore none to slay and kill none to inflict pain anymore none to make saints grieve and cry anymore none to deceive none to cause death no liars, no deceivers no herders, no sorcerers none to rob us none to contaminate the new humanity none to defile None to tempt all these sources of misery driven by the devil and the devil himself too. They're all gone. And their place is described because all of these miserable and misery-causing sinners, all of them have been 
brushed off into the lake of fire, the beast, the false prophet, the devil himself we saw in chapter 20, and now everybody else, all of these wicked, into the lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And also, there is no possibility of any sinners re-entering again into this new paradise of God. You remember how in the old there was the paradise, but something entered in. There was something got a foothold. Somehow evil got a foothold. The serpent, whoever the serpent was, that got into the garden and he brought the sin and the defilement. But that'll never happen again. Because it says there in verse 27, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. No sly serpent sneaking in. No snake as it were, crawling in unawares, undetected, to work deceit and lie and abomination and to delude and deceive the new humanity. There's no way anybody else is going to get in like the serpent got in in the first paradise. This is totally new. No wise, the Bible says, enter into it anything that defileth. And that's not just human defilers. That's demonic defilers, defilers of any kind whatsoever. None will enter in. No reappearing of the devil. No escaping out of the lake of fire. No beast and false prophet getting into the new ever again. The human occupants of the new are fixed then. And they can't be added on to or diminished because you notice how the chapter ends. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's a good note to close the chapter. It's because of the Lamb's book of life. Not just the book of life, but the Lamb's book of life. It's the Lamb, and we're reminded at the close of the chapter how all of this has come about. How has this come about? It's come about because of God and the Lamb. God and the Lamb, making all things new. You see, the first heaven and earth was made new by creation. But not the new heaven and the new earth. It's not made new by creation. It's made new by redemption. It's made new by the blood of the Lamb. It's made new by the grace of God. It's made new by at Calvary. That's when it was made new. That's when it began. And we must never forget that this is accomplished because of the Lamb. And the Lamb brings us to the cross. And the Lamb brings us to Calvary. It's accomplished because what happened there at the cross with the Lamb. The Lamb did it. This removal of sin business. This accomplishment at the cross. This, it is finished. It is done at the cross. That's what did it. That's where it was done. You know, that's why there were those cosmic events. This was cosmic changing the cross. The earth rent, the earthquake, the rocks rent, the sun was darkened, the whole sky was darkened, there was neither sun nor star appearing in the darkness. There was the rending of the veil, the renting of the very core of the, the present, there was the dead rising, there were the graves being opened. Those were cosmic symbols. Showing that Christ was bringing in the new. And it was done at the cross. It was finished 
There. That's where it was done. And those cosmic symbols show that the old has been scattered and the new begins. The new's begun. Christ entered into the new when he rose from the dead. It's finished. It hasn't been consummated yet. Because you see, all the Christians have to be born. It takes thousands of years for Christians to be born. But, and when the last Christian has been born and saved, and the Lamb's book of life, everyone saved that's in it, it's consummated then. And the whole bride comes down into the new. It's finished. But it's made sure of the cross. That's why we have the Christian Sabbath, you know. Whenever Christ rose from the dead, he brought... He rose on the Lord's day. That, that's the Christian Sabbath. Because he entered into his rest. And what is rest? Rest is a ceasing from labor. A ceasing from the work. He was the pioneer of salvation. He finished the work. And he rose from the dead. Entered into his rest. And he now rests from his labors at the right hand of God. Seated. It's finished. It's done. And there's a Christian Sabbath now. Uh, we, don't, we don't remember the old now because we're, we're not too bothered about the old creation. We're more concerned about the new creation. What the Lord Jesus has done for us. What he has finished. What his new creative powers have accomplished. And so we keep the Lord's day. But it's still a Sabbath. It's a Christian Sabbath. And we ought to keep the Sabbath day, brethren, and our new day, and not be ashamed about it, and not be one bit embarrassed about it, and, and don't even begin to think that it's legalism to have a Christian Sabbath. No! It's because our Redeemer has entered into the rest, and he's reigning over his new creation, and he will bring it to its consummation at the end. So we no longer keep Saturday, but a new day. This is the day that the Lord himself has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. And therefore there does indeed remain a Sabbath to the people of God. So this is what the Lord has done. And we can wait for it. And we can rejoice in the hope of it.